Let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, you truly are majesty. God, I pray that as we come to understand the glory of the gospel and its implications in our lives, um, we will be moved to recognize more and more your majesty. And God, that our lives would truly be living sacrifices um, to you. That, that our bodies together would be one living sacrifice to you, to honor you in a spiritual act of worship. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to finish our series on the book of Jonah. Uh, So we've already, last week, we finished chapter 4 of Jonah. And then this week, um, I I want us to to, to take maybe um, a holistic view of the book of Jonah in the context of the Bible as a whole. And one of the things that we're going to talk about as we do that is something called typology, okay? Um, or the, the study of types and antitypes. Okay, so what, what that is, you might think, well, what the heck are you talking about? Typology is uh, the study of types and antitypes. And a type is a person or an event, especially when we're talking about in the context of Scripture, uh, a type is a person or event or, or symbol that prefigures or foreshadows something that is to come. And so most of the time when we look at that in Scripture, we're looking at something in the Old Testament as a type of something in the New Testament. So the, the type is the foreshadowing, the prefiguring, and the antitype is the thing or person itself. And most often we talk about things that are a type of prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Christ. And so really today we're going to look at Christ in the book of Jonah. And in many ways, Jonah is a type of Jesus. He prefigures, foreshadows, he's a a portrait of the reality. That might be another way to think of types and antitypes is that, okay, the, the, the type is a, a, a painting and the antitype is the reality. So Jonah is a, a, a painter's portrait of Christ compared to Jesus, the real thing. Because yeah, here's why we need to think of it that way. J- Jonah isn't exactly like Jesus. Okay, not everything about Jonah's life represents something in Jesus' life and ministry, but there are definitely some prefiguring, some foreshadowings of, of Christ in both the book of Jonah and, and the person of Jonah. So today, really, we're going to look at Jonah as a gospel story, how the gospel is present in the book of Jonah, how the gospel is demonstrated and proclaimed in the book of Jonah. And, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that this is true. Jesus himself said that all of the law and the prophets, they point to me. 
Okay, Jesus gives us, in, in one sentence, a hermeneutic for studying the, the Old Testament. Right? And, and if you don't know what the word hermeneutic means, number one, you should have been in our Biblical Hermeneutics Foundations course last semester, and you would know. Number two, go look it up. Huh? I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, or, 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 or number three, come to the Old Testament Foundations, and we'll probably, uh, Old Testament Survey Foundations course that starts sometime soon. I didn't look at the slide, sorry. But Jesus gives us this way of studying the Old Testament. Look for me. That's simply what Jesus says in that statement of all of the law and the prophets. They point to me. He says, look for me in the Old Testament. So today we're going to look for Jesus in this Old Testament book of the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to look at 39 to 41, but also, you know, also open it up to the book of Jonah, because we're going to spend, a, obviously, a lot of time looking at the book of Jonah as a whole. So maybe, you know, put a bookmark or your finger or whatever in Jonah, and then also turn to Matthew 12, 39 to 41. And, and just, just so that we'll know that, that Jonah is indeed a type of Jesus, because... Let's be honest, some people get carried away with this. Some people get carried away with finding a type of Christ in something in the Old Testament. And so they'll read into that a type that isn't really there. Okay? Um, uh, and so we want to be real careful. So here is our clear biblical justification for seeing Jonah as a type of Jesus. So Matthew 12, beginning of verse 39. Um, but he, being Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see right there? Jesus, Jesus proclaims that there's something about Jonah that foreshadows something about me. Jesus says that just as Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, and just as he was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, and, and I hope you understand that when Jesus is talking about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. Because the Son of Man is a messianic title. It is a title for the Messiah. So when Jesus says Son of Man, he's talking about the Messiah, and he's talking about himself. So Jesus in Matthew, and it's repeated also in Luke, in both, in both places, Jesus says, Jonah's like me in these couple of things. He was a sign to the people of Nineveh. And part of that sign was that he was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. And I'm going to be a sign to this generation. I'm going to be a sign to the world. And part of that sign is going to be that I will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And of course, 
Jesus was referring to his death and burial and ultimate resurrection. His burial and his resurrection, that being in the heart of the earth is being in the tomb. Jesus is talking about him being in the tomb for part of three days and three nights and then gloriously being risen from the dead. And that will be the sign for this and really all generations that he is indeed the Messiah. That's not the only similarity, though, between Jesus and Jonah, or Jonah and Jesus. I'm sorry. It's not the, not, the, not the only similarity, the only way in which Jonah is a type of Jesus. In fact, much about Jonah's ministry to Nineveh is about him being a type of Christ. Think about it. How does the book of Jonah begin? If you've been here for the last six weeks and you don't know the answer to that question, I, 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 I may cry. Does anybody know how the book of Jonah begins? Please say yes. Okay, yeah. Say, say, sorry, say it again, Ben. Relax. Yeah. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Okay? And why does God call Jonah to go to Nineveh? Okay, to be assigned to them, right? To preach to them, right? Jesus, God says to Jonah, the evil of that great city has come up to me. Therefore, I want you to go to them and, and preach to them. God sends Jonah because God sees what's going on in Nineveh, knows its condition, and knows that what's needed there is proclamation of God's word and either repentance or destruction, repentance or judgment. God knows and sees that, and so he sends Jonah. Why doesn't God just destroy Nineveh and be done with it? Why does he go send Jonah? Because he's a loving and merciful God. Because he's a sending God. Because God is a sending God, a sending and seeking God. In fact, I think that might have been the point of the sermon on, of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, is that God is this seeking and sending God. And so that's why he sends Jonah. And you know what? That's also why God sent his one and only son, Jesus. Because God is a seeking and sending God, he sent Jonah, and ultimately he sends Jesus. In fact, uh, the book of uh, 1 Timothy tells us that, that, that a, a, a reliable, a trustworthy saying that is worthy of full attention is that Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. And why did Christ come to seek and save that which is lost? Because God the Father sent Jesus to seek and save that which is lost. We see Jonah as the one who's sent by God to seek and save that which is lost because God is a seeking and sending God. And so Jonah reflects God's character in that by being called to go, being sent. And Jesus is the ultimate, the ultimate incarnation of God's character and nature in that. In fact, He is the incarnation of God. He is all the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Him in flesh and blood, and He is sent to seek and save that which is lost. So in that way, Jonah is a type, a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of Christ who is to come. 
And then here's where Jonah maybe doesn't represent uh, Christ very well. He refuses to go and he runs the other way. Okay? Um, and then he's asleep in the boat. And there's a storm on the sea. Does that sound like maybe a gospel story of something in one of the gospels that you've heard? Yes. Okay, what does it sound like to you? Okay, guys, what, um, maybe, maybe since last week you've forgotten that when I ask a question, I'm anticipating a response on your part. Um, so in case you've forgotten that since last week or two weeks before that, or the week before that, or the week before that, when I ask a question, it's not rhetorical. When I ask a question that I only want you to think about and not say out loud, I'll tell you in advance, okay? Got it? Yeah. All right, yeah, somebody got it. Okay, all right. Okay, so, what gospel account does that remind you of? Somebody is asleep in the boat when there's a storm on the sea. Jesus calming the sea, right. Jesus and the disciples are in a boat, okay? And there's a storm on the sea, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the, the disciples come like, oh, Jesus, aren't you, uh, you know, aren't you, uh, care, don't you care about us at all? Don't you know we're going to die out here? You know, come on. And then Jesus, like, oh, you have little faith, gets up, peace, be still, the, the, the sea is calm, the storm goes away. Now, obviously, Jonah doesn't do the same thing exactly. Jonah is asleep in the boat, and the sailors come to him in the midst of the storm, wake him up and say, do some, what, what do you know about this? What do you know about this? And uh, he tells them, well, you know, I serve, I fear, and we're going to put fear in air quotes, because Jonah says he fears the Lord God who made the dry land and the sea, but he's in the midst of running on the sea, from the God who made the sea, so I don't know how much he actually fears Jonah. We talked about that. Fears God already. Jonah fears God, but that's what he says. And then they cast lots, find out Jonah's the cause. He says, "Well, here's what you got to do: throw me into the sea, and the storm will, will be calmed." And of course, the sailors are hesitant to do that. But finally, finally, they throw him into the sea. The sea is calmed, and the sailors respond in faith. In God. They are amazed. They are amazed by what God has done in calming the storm by throwing a man into the sea. And before they called out to many different gods and prayed to many different gods, but after this, they exceedingly fear the Lord God. They offer sacrifices to Him and to Him alone, and they make vows to Him. Offering sacrifices and making vows is the Old Testament way of expressing faith. These sailors, they have faith in God because the storm is calmed. And when Jesus calms the storm on the sea, the scripture says that the disciples are amazed. And their journey to faith in Christ is strengthened. Okay, Again, a foreshadowing in Jonah of Christ who is to come. And then, what happens to Jonah when he's thrown into the sea? He's swallowed by a giant fish. And what happens in the fish? Somebody from this side of the room. Over here, come on. What happens to Jonah in the fish? What? 
Jonah repents, right? Yeah, uh, he 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 offers this prayer of repentance in which he first of all just talks about death, right? He 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 likens his experience in the sea and in the belly of the fish to death. Okay, he he says he's at the gates of Sheol, the place of the dead, and that God saves, brings him up out of Sheol, out of the place of the dead. Okay. And then while he's in there, he prays a prayer of repentance. And then what? After Jonah prays his prayer of repentance in the belly of the fish, what happens? He gets vomited out of the great fish. Okay? Just pukes him right out. Right? It's been in there, you know, part of three days and three nights. Guys, isn't that foreshadowing? And Jesus nails this one. This should be the easiest part of, of the life of Jonah foreshadowing something in the life of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that, he's, that that's a foreshadowing of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You know, Jonah in the fish says, I, it's like I'm dead. Jesus dies at the cross. Jonah's in the belly of that fish. Jesus is put into a tomb. And Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Not necessarily, you know, 72 hours or whatever. There's, you know, understanding of part of a day and part of a night. He's still considered a day and a night and everything. So, But part of three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the fish. Jesus is in the tomb, dead in the tomb part of three days and three nights. And then, by the power of God, Jonah is vomited up out of the fish onto dry land. And by the power of God, Jesus is gloriously raised from the dead. Again, a foreshadowing of Christ. Jonah prefigures, teaches us, shows us something about the Messiah that is to come. And then we see Jonah going to Nineveh. Again, and, and tell me something about Nineveh in relation to Israel. Okay, thank you. Something else? An enemy? Right on? Yeah. Okay, so Jonah goes to his enemy. And what does he do there? Proclaims God's word, and then what happens? They re- Nineveh repents. Who does Jesus go to? The enemies of God. True? Because of sin, aren't we all at enmity with God? Because of sin, aren't we all at enmity with God? Yes, we are. Know that to be true. And and I would say, you know, um, because of God's grace expressed in Christ, because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, don't be afraid to affirm the truth that 
you know, because of sin, we're enemies of God. Because the good news is, because of faith in Christ, we are his children. We, we, we go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light because of Jesus. We go from, you know, being aliens and, and children of wrath to being God's children covered by his love. I mean, that, that, that's the transaction that takes place because of Jesus. But because Jesus came to those who knew him not. Jesus came to those who were enemies of God. Jesus came to those who hated and despised him. And all he did was proclaim the truth of God, live the truth of God, become a propitiation, hallelujah, for our, for us. Absorbed God's wrath on our behalf at the cross. Satisfied God's wrath, expressed in His glorious resurrection. But Jesus came to, comes to the enemies of God, just as Jonah went to the enemies of Israel to proclaim the news. And... When that news is proclaimed and God is at work, repentance and faith is the result. Just as, as Jesus comes and his, the truth of God is proclaimed in Christ and God is at work, then repentance and faith is the result. I want us to see... Not only the similarities, not just this prefiguring, foreshadowing of Christ in the life of Jonah. Not only do I want to see that, but I also want us just to simply see that the gospel is proclaimed in the book of Jonah. And the first thing I think is undoubtedly true about the book of Jonah is it's all about God. It's all about God. Just as the gospel is all about God. In fact, um, God is the gospel, right? He is the, he is the author and object and reward of the gospel. It all begins and ends with God. And the book of Jonah begins and ends with God literally. It begins with God calling Jonah and it ends with God admonishing Jonah. Right? I mean, it, it, Jonah begins and ends with God speaking, and in between, God is working. God speaks at the beginning, He speaks at the end, and He works throughout the entire book of Jonah. You know, where does the storm come from? God, God produces the storm on the sea. How does the storm end? God ends the storm. Where does the big fish come from that swallows Jonah? God appoints a giant fish to swallow up Jonah. Um, how does Jonah get on dry land? God makes the fish sick and it vomits him up. Okay, And then, how do the people of Nineveh repent? Because God moves them to repentance. Think about it. We talked about this when we looked at, at, at chapter 4 of Jonah. You know, 120,000 people in, in the city of Nineveh. One man preaches for one day and the whole city repents. 
What is that but the work of God? And, you know, we even talked about how Champaign-Urbana is about, you know, a little bit bigger than 120,000, you know. But what if just one of us preached one day in Champaign-Urbana and the entire city repented? The cities, the Twin Cities repented. Man, we would celebrate God's mighty work because it would be God's mighty work because we'd recognize that's not humanly possible. So God is the one who's sovereign and at work throughout the book of Jonah. So we see God, and we, and we understand that he's holy. We understand that God is holy as we read the book of Jonah. Because he's offended by the evil and the sin of the city of Nineveh. And so he sends, and God is this seeking and sending God, so he sends his prophet because he's seeking these people. He's also seeking the sailors, and he's seeking the, the people of Nineveh. And so he sends his prophet. So we see, you know, God who is holy. We see God who is seeking and sending. Let's just see this God who is, who is sovereignly at work, drawing men and women to himself and using his people to do so. And then let's not forget that we see God as creator. Because Jonah proclaims, I fear the Lord God who made, who created this, the dry land and the sea. And then we see in also when in God's discourse with Jonah, you know, saying, well, shouldn't I care about all of these people in the city of Nineveh? You know, because God appoints the plant, and again, and some more of God's sovereign activity in the book of Jonah. God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah and provide shade for him, and then it dies, and Jonah's mad, and God says, "Are you? do you do well to be angry over the plant? Because you didn't make it grow. I made it grow. Okay, I'm the one that did all that. But yet you're mad over it. Shouldn't I also care about the people in Nineveh? And the hanging implication there is because I made them. God says, because I made them, and I created them in my image, of course, I'm concerned about them. I do well to, to have compassion and to care about what happens to them. So we see God's loving kindness, his, his care expressed in the book of Jonah, just as we see all of those attributes of God expressed in the gospel. Because we understand we're made by God in his image. Okay? And that he cares deeply about us. And that he is sovereignly at work according to his loving kindness and mercy to draw us to him. But we also see something in Jonah about man. We see something in the book of Jonah about man. And what do we primarily see about man in the book of Jonah? Rebellious. Absolutely correct. Man is ultimately rebellious. I mean, God calls Jonah. Jonah's first response is to run from God. The sailors on the sea, there's a giant storm. What's their first inclination? Let's pray to all of these various deities that we think might be out there instead of turning to the one true God. And why is Jonah showing up in Nineveh anyway? Because Nineveh is a greatly evil city, and their evil, their rebellion has come up before the Lord. He's noticed it. He's made note of it. He sees it. He's aware of it. It's part of his desire to seek and to send the city, and send Jonah to the city of Nineveh. 
So all over the book of Jonah, we see man's rebellion against God and therefore man's need for an intermediary, a savior. That's what man ultimately needs because man is ultimately separated from God because of his sin. So we see God, his character and his sovereign work in, in the lives of, of people and in his work in this world. And he's at work because man is sinful. We see that man is sinful and rebellious against God. And then we see Christ. And I've already talked about how we see Christ in the book of Jonah. We see Christ in the book of Jonah. We see prefiguring and foreshadowing of Christ in the book of Jonah. In, in Jonah and, and we've already we've talked about in Jonah's going, in his action with the sailors, in his action with uh, the people of Nineveh, uh, his, his experience in the whale or in the fish, and his action with the people of Nineveh, and then ultimately in their response. Okay, we see Christ. Christ is proclaimed. That there would be one who would come, and in his coming, he brings salvation. And that salvation comes through repentance and faith. So we see God, we see man, we see Christ, and then of course we see response. We see that a response is called for by the gospel. The gospel implies a response. And not just any response, but a response of repentance and faith. Now we also understand that that response of repentance and faith, that even itself finds its, its origin, its authorship in God. It's God that brings about repentance and faith in our lives because repentance and faith is the response to the gospel the gospel of God that teaches something about God, about man, about Christ, and the need to respond. The gospel is, is demonstrated and proclaimed in the book of Jonah. Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets point to him. The, the song that we sang before um, before the, the message this morning, Majesty, I think that's our, that's our response to the gospel. It's being humbled by who God is and who we are as men, as men. Being overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace of God expressed to us in Christ. And our response is in repentance and faith to recognize God's majesty. To recognize Him as majesty. To, to, to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. To, un, to, to begin to understand how glorious and precious and, and incredible the gospel is. What a beautiful gift it is and to cherish the gospel. To cherish Christ who is at the center of the gospel. To cherish Him. You know, we, um, we sing a lot of wonderful songs um, 
here at Redeemer. I, I mean, I appreciate that that um, you know Caleb and Ben and others who who are part of our our worship team really give attention to the words of the songs that we sing. You know, we don't just pick out like the songs that sound the best or are the most popular or will will bring about a certain emotional reaction in all of you. Now those songs are actually picked out because they communicate truth and they are founded in scripture and they are theologically sound. So I really appreciate that. But I also know that often we sing songs that I know aren't true about me. E- even this morning, when we were singing this, the Majesty song, there was a part of me that recognizes that to be true, and there's a part of me that knows it's not completely true in my life. That even though I'm sitting here singing about God's Majesty, I don't always grasp and love and cherish and stand in awe and be humbled by God's majesty. But I want it to be true. I long for it to be true. And I think that's our response this morning to the gospel's proclamation, even in the book of Jonah, even in the Old Testament, even in the book of Jonah. As we think about this beloved children's story, we understand you know, Jonah and the whale is not a children's story only. Gosh, it's a beautiful presentation of the gospel. It's the love and mercy and grace and justice of a sovereign God put on display. It's his mercy and love and, and, uh, and loving kindness on display. And we would do well for the songs that we sing to be true about our response to be the songs that we sing to be true about us. That we, that we would love Him, love the Gospel, that we would be humbled by His majesty, that we would be in awe of His work in our lives through the Gospel. That we would, we would be, you know, empty-handed but alive in His hands. That, that's also, you know, a response to the Gospel. So really, at the close of this message, at the close of the series on the book of Jonah, we really come down to one thing. Salvation belongs to God. How are you going to respond to that? Think about it. How are you going to respond to that? Let's pray together. God, thank you that this that, that salvation is yours and yours alone. God, honestly, if it belonged to us, it'd be a mess. We'd mess it up. We would pervert it. We would soil it. We would make it imperfect. So God, thank you that salvation belongs to you and to you alone. God, I pray that that would permeate our, our, our hearts and our minds and our lives and that we would live, we would live as though salvation belongs to you. In Christ's name, amen.